was just a person who um, had enormous uh, curiosity, enormous energy, uh, and a heart uh, for the community. He was tireless. This is Bloodworks 101, and I'm John Yeager. In this episode, you'll hear the story of a man of enormous energy with a heart for his community, Dr. Charles Drew, an African-American physician who developed ways to process and store blood plasma in something called a blood bank. He's credited with creating some of the first blood banks in America and for advancing the cause of a more inclusive blood supply. In fact, he's known as the father of blood banking. Dr. Drew directed the blood plasma programs of the United States and Great Britain in World War II. He's credited with saving thousands of lives during that war, but he resigned after a ruling that the blood of African Americans would be segregated. He died on April 1st, 1950, in an automobile accident. Now, there's a long-standing story about that accident. Some say this pioneer in the blood banking industry was denied admittance to a local hospital after the accident because he was black. It's the kind of story right out of Hollywood. But is it true? Well, to answer that question and many others about Dr. Charles Drew, my colleague and Bloodworks 101 contributing editor Juan Cotto got a chance to talk to Charles Drew's daughter, Sylvia Drew Ivey, the special assistant to the president at Charles Drew University in Los Angeles. Miss Ivey, pleasure to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And I would first like to ask you, could you tell us a little bit about your father? Uh, yes. Well, my father was um, a physician. Uh, and before he was a physician, he was uh, a high school student interested in being an engineer. And so I often think that his interest in engineering helped him decide to become a surgeon in his work. Um, but before he became uh, a surgeon practicing at Freedman's Hospital in Washington, D.C., which is the only standing hospital uh, left over from the Civil War when hospitals were set up for, for slaves who were freed. And there were a large number of those uh, hospitals set up and they've all gone, um, but Freedman's was the last one standing. Um, and it was affiliated with Howard University School of Medicine. So he trained physicians at the Howard University School of Medicine. But on his way to that work, which was the work that he loved the most, which was training students, creating a cadre of excellence among black surgeons, which we did not have a cadre of board certified black surgeons. And he trained half of the black surgeons in the country um, before he died a very young death at age 45. He started out, he went to McGill Medical School uh, because they didn't admit blacks in the day that he was applying for medical schools. Harvard University did admit him, but waitlisted him. And McGill accepted him and he went there and he was interested in blood, even as a student in medical school. I believe he was interested in, in blood because everybody has the same yellow and red blood. Mm -hmm. We don't have green or orange or, you know, white blood or black blood. We all have 
yellow plasma and red hemoglobin cells. That's all we have. And I think that was his way of saying human beings are the same. We're constructed the same way in the life fluid without which we all die. And the fact that that life fluid, when lost, uh, can create shock and kill you, uh, was a matter of great interest to him. So even as a student, he was concerned about that. How do we make this wonderful life fluid available to everyone when they need it? Well, then World War II came along and created a need for just this person and just this area of interest. Um, and he started uh, uh, an effort to separate the yellow plasma from the red um, and to figure out a way to do that in volume, to dry it and store it so that it was sterile uh, and so it could be shipped to soldiers overseas. So he became the man of the hour during World War II, but he had a trial run when he was in Canada. He had an internship in a hospital there. There was a fire on the ward. Many of the people on the, on the ward were burned, a number of them very badly burned. When you're in a fire, you lose fluids. Mm. What, how do you replace the fluids so they don't die? How do you do it at a time when it's an emergency, you don't have a time to do blood type? He said, they'll have plasma. And he gave them plasma and he saved all their lives. Okay. So that was a trial run for what was going on, on uh, in World War II in the European theater before we even got there. But there was a, a Dr. Beattie who had been in Canada and knew about his work at McGill and wrote to him. He went, after he left medical school in Canada, he went to Columbia University and studied for a doctorate in science, the first black to get that. Um, uh, and, and Dr. Beattie wrote to him and said, please send us 5,000 ampules of plasma for the soldiers. And he said, well, they're not 5,000 ampules anywhere, but we will send you plasma. So he invented the refrigerated um, truck to go out and collect blood in the community. And with that collected, collected uh, blood, he spun it down, uh, dried it, and, and sent it off. Dr. Beattie. The Red Cross, seeing what he was doing, made him head up the Blood for Britain project. Okay, and, and then he did that with a whole fleet of people. Um, and, and ultimately, um, he decided after um, those kind of heroic measures to leave and go back to Howard. So um, there's a story about him that he that he left in anger because the Red Cross said, first they said, don't collect blood from blacks, only collect from whites. And second, uh, he said, well, there's no scientific reason for that. And they said, okay, collect it, but you have to label it. 
So he had to yield to the labeling part, which of course he objected to. He said, there's just really no reason to do that. But there's no documentation that says he left the Red Cross because of those bad experiences. I think he, he left because he wanted to be with his family. So that's, that's a little bit of history of Charles Drew. He died in 1950, uh, driving to a free clinic in Alabama, which they did every year. Uh, and he drove because he had three residents who were very poor and they couldn't fly. They couldn't afford, you know, airfare. Uh, um, and it was a long drive because they, could, they couldn't stop in any motel because we couldn't go to motels. We weren't admitted as blacks. Um, and the other three were asleep and he was driving and he fell asleep. And when he pulled the wheel to try to get out of the side ditch that he had run into when he fell asleep uh, and it caused the car to turn over and the other three were thrown out but his foot was caught under the accelerator so he wasn't thrown out and when it rolled over it crushed him. Um, he was taken to a white hospital. He was provided all the care that they could give but he was just too badly injured. There's a myth that he was denied blood because of blood plasma uh, that's not true. There was a black man at Duke who had been in a car accident around the same time. Uh, Duke had a limited uh, willingness to see black patients. They had reached their quota by the time this soldier got there. And so they wouldn't let him in and he died. That story of that soldier and my father's death got conflated and then people took that story and said, this is what it's like to be black in America. You invent a way to uh, separate blood and preserve it, blood plasma and preserve it and save countless lives. And then when you need it, they don't give it to you. Well, it's a very poignant story. It doesn't happen to be true, but it does carry the pain that we all carry as African-Americans in this country. So that myth will never die. Your, your father's legacy as an innovative leader, and one that obviously is being carried forward by the mission of the Drew University. Can, can you speak a little bit to his, his legacy and leadership in innovation in science? Well, he was just a person who um, had enormous uh, curiosity, enormous energy, uh, and a heart uh, for the community. He was tireless. He didn't. He didn't know how to say, "That's enough uh, for today or tomorrow or this year." He just was dedicated to service, dedicated to um, uh, bringing the community up, working together. He was. He was an athlete in, in high school and in college, and he was always the captain of the team because he was just a born leader. He was just a born leader. And, and thankfully for all of us, um, his energy was piqued um, by this issue of um, blood. He, he was interested in, in blood. Uh, he did have a sister, Elsie. He came from a family of five in which he was the eldest. 
and Elsie died of the flu in 1914. And it broke his heart, broke his parents' heart. Um, and he never really got over Elsie's loss. Um, and I think that may be the reason. His sister says that's the reason he went into medicine. Um, I'm not sure who inspired him to look at, at blood as the issue that he wanted to research. But as I say, I, I think that was his, that was his way of being a race man. Uh, he had a friend and colleague, Montague Cobb, who became head of the NMA, was very political and, um, you know, said sometimes you just have to get a bat and come out swinging. Well, my father would never have said it like that. But in his heart, he wanted to get a scientific bat and come out swinging. You know, let the science speak for itself. Um, demonstrate it. Show it. Save people's lives with it. Charles Drew University um, it really is now educating a whole new generation of people to the legacy of, of Dr. Charles Drew and, and the innovation in science, medicine, and research. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little about the mission of Charles Drew University and the impact that it's having, creating pathways for this younger generation, especially for students of color who are interested in pursuing those pathways into this, in these particular fields. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the, the school was founded as a result of a community revolt in 1965. The Watts community was like a donut hole of neglect in Los Angeles. You know, no Beverly Hills for us. Uh, everything here was neglect. We had, uh, we had no grocery stores. We had uh, uh, no jobs. We had no hospital. We had no training ground for health uh, professionals. We just didn't have, the list was extremely long. And the people were suffering. People were suffering and they, and they revolted. And we had the Watts Revolt, 1965, and a state commission was set up by the, uh, Governor Edmund Brown. And they looked at it and they were, they were shocked really at the picture of what was going on in this community. And they said, we need many things to, to provide um, uh, equity for people in, in South LA. And among those things is a hospital and a medical school for training positions so that they can keep their skills up going on. So with that, we were founded as the postgraduate um, medical training center and we have 13 residency training programs at Martin Luther King Hospital. Most medical schools start bottom up. We stopped, started top down with residency and work down. So now we have uh, the traditional undergraduate MD program and we also have uh, a very large nursing school. We have a physician assistant program we have an undergraduate health training program. Um, and we're a thousand students now. Uh, we started with 26. So it's, it's really grown in 52 years and we are uh, the most diverse uh, four-year 
college in the country in terms of faculty uh, and we're the second most diverse uh, four-year college in the country in um, student diversity. We have large numbers of African-American, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander, and other uh, students from across the world. So we're really quite a jewel, quite, quite an exceptional jewel. We used to be hidden, we're not so hidden anymore because more and more people, um, like your colleagues, are learning about us. And um, we're so happy to let people know that you can train people for excellence, but you can also train them for excellence in service of underserved populations. Tell us about your father's legacy, your family legacy, and your, your perception of that legacy, and also representing it in such a unique way on the campus and, and how is that received by by students and faculty and and uh, and what are the what what is the what is the at times I'm sure maybe a burden and at times I'm sure is a a unique special gift that you get to carry uh, with that. Well, I I'm a community advocate. Everything that I've done in my life and work has been an effort to be of service. To community, and I, I, you know, I've had a lot of different opportunities to do that. I was a civil rights lawyer in the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, um, I was a health lawyer in the National Health Law Program, a legal services um, entity. Um, I worked for the Board of Supervisors in uh, in Los Angeles County in a government entity. So I've worn many different hats in terms of the structures that I've worked in, but all with the same goal of um, upgrade, upgrade recognition, respect, um, and participation uh, of the communities that we're serving. So um, I'm very much in my father's mold in that way uh, because he, he just loved the community. He just loved the community and he loved the people in it. and. Um, he would do anything for them. He was entirely uh, selfless. I'm thinking of the time um, on a Sunday morning, uh, you can imagine a surgeon would, would have very little time to himself and his family um, in a public hospital, Freedman's Hospital in Washington, D.C. But a Sunday morning, the phone rang and, and one of the people who worked on campus had a son in a baseball game and a, the ball had, had hit him in the eye and he was bleeding profusely and the father was frantic. He said, take him to the emergency room and I'll meet you there in 10 minutes. And this person became a friend of mine throughout our, our life after. And he said that he was crying and blood was streaming and the father was hysterical. And my father just sat him down very calmly and, and uh, cleaned up the blood and said, um, I see where the tear is. His eye is all right. I'm going to sew up the tear now and he's going to be fine. 
And so my friend says that the father called the, the wife and said, the boy is all right. The boy is all right. He didn't lose his eye. He didn't lose his eye. And, and it's just a very sweet story about um, doing what was needed, doing what was necessary at that moment, not thinking that this is an interruption. This is just where he was needed. This is what he needed to do. And that's just the way he, he lived. So he was just kind of a heroic figure. You know, they just, they just watched him and learned from him and tried to be as important a contributor as he tried to be in his young life. In the last 12 months, we have seen such incredible situations develop in our own country in regards to civil rights, diversity, inclusion, especially around uh, issues going on in our community with, with the police. And it's created, you, you mentioned uh, the, the, the Watts situations mm -hmm. um, in the 1960s, and, and certainly some of, the, some of the protests and some of the movement that we've seen in the last 12 months is very similar to those times. And mm -hmm. just, just to end our conversation today, I'd just like to get your thoughts in regards to uh, where we are in our country in regards to uh, this, this ever-evolving conversation and discussion around race and where, uh, where we are going to go. Well, of course, the, the scenario is ugly um, and shocking. Uh, and horrifying, um, but I look at the fact that we're joining arms with our Asian and Latinx brothers and sisters, um, that this country is going to have more of us all in the end than, you know, we're all in it together. And one final question, how can we engage the, the black community in particular, but minority community in to to participate in in, in blood donation and, and increase increase the number of of uh, people of color who are donating blood. Well, I think they need to think about the example of Charles Drew and and what his focus on blood and the symbolic meaning of one blood meant um it's 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 an ongoing story it's just an honor to speak with you today and and i want to thank you so much for your time and on behalf of our our patients in our community on behalf of our research staff on behalf of our employees on behalf of our administration of blood wars northwest we just really appreciate you taking the time to uh, spend with us today Thank you. Thank you for letting me tell my story. What a legacy. What a great story about a real American pioneer in science. Better than any Hollywood ending, right? Maybe that's because Dr. Charles Drew's story is true. Well, that's just about it for Bloodworks 101, the podcast designed to inspire you to donate either time, money, or blood. I'm your host, John Yeager. See you next time.